Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Good morning, everybody. So we have some strangers amongst us this morning. You? Who are you? I'm Herod. You're King Herod? Yeah. Oh. Welcome to the Vine Church. Who do you think Jesus is? Well, I feel John the Baptist, but maybe it could be him. So you think John the Baptist is back from the dead? Maybe. Okay. Interesting. Who is Jesus? This is really the, the kind of the great question that Luke has been presenting us with over the last few months, since January, in fact, actually, we've been going through Luke. That question, who is Jesus, is really what this whole uh, gospel section, Luke 1 to 9, is about. Who is this person? We keep meeting characters along the way, and and, um, as I say, since January, we've come to loads of different people who have appeared in the story, then disappeared again. And every time they appear, the question that seems to unite all of them is this question, who is Jesus? You, you at the back. Who are you? Your son died and came back to life. And and who do you say Jesus is? Wow, a great prophet, maybe Elijah. And I think this Jesus' disciples have probably been pondering that question as they've been following him around. Who is this? And as the story develops, we start to see who this Jesus really is. As I say, this is why the, the sermon series has been called Seeing Jesus. Lots of people have seen him. Many people have missed who he is. I think we're okay now, I hope. So, if we can open our Bibles up to Luke 9. Sorry, who are you? You're a Pharisee. And who do you say Jesus is? A troublemaker. Right, well, that's very interesting. Thank you. So, who is Jesus? Luke 5, 21. The Pharisees see Jesus and they say, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Luke 7, 49. The guests at a dinner have seen Jesus forgive someone. They say, who is this who even forgives sins? Luke 8, 25. His disciples have just seen Jesus stop the storm and they ask, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Luke 9, last week, we saw Herod say, I beheaded John. Who then is this that I hear such things about? Who is Jesus? And who are you? Yeah. You suffered from some bleeding. And, and who do you say Jesus is? An amazing healer. Well, we've got some things to juggle here. Is he John the Baptist back from the dead? Is he a great prophet like, uh, like Elijah? Is he a troublemaker who's just here to ruin everyone's life? Or is he a healer, maybe like Moses? When we come to this passage, we find the climax of this theme. It's almost like we come to the capital city of the theme of seeing Jesus for who he really is. Questions like, who is this? How does he do that? 
Why does he say these things all find their answer? This is a passage that really confronts us directly with who Jesus is. Let's take a look in Luke chapter 9. I'm not going to read it all in one block. I want us to work through the passage. So if you have a Bible, open it and keep it open because we're going to walk it through together. The first verses, Luke 9, 18 to 20, say this. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets from long ago has come back to life. But what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. The disciples have been with Jesus for ages now. They have watched him work. They've seen the different sides of his ministry. They've been there when other people have declared who they think Jesus is. They've seen lots of people make lots of guesses. They themselves have been a bit slower to guess. We've not had any period yet where they've said, oh, we think we know who you are. It's kind of been like, do you know the analogy of the elephant? Lots of people with blindfolds on, feeling different parts of the elephant. One person feels the ear, and they say, oh, I think this is a palm leaf, so I must be groping at a palm tree. Another person feels the tusk and says, I think this is some form of weapon, maybe a javelin that we're dealing with. Another person holds the trunk and says, oh, snake. It's kind of the same thing. Lots of people have seen a part of Jesus' ministry. Some people have said, oh, maybe he's a healer or a sage or a man of love or a troublemaker. But now Peter, one of the disciples who's been with him the whole time, has come to a startling conclusion. The only one that he feels makes sense of all the relevant data. But it is a terrifying conclusion to come to. Could it be I can imagine that as Peter was asked asked this question by Jesus, who do you say I am? He's probably been loving the fact that he's not been asked this so far. I've been with you for three years. I really ought to know who you are. God's Messiah? Let's just step back and kind of unpack that word. What's contained in that word? It's not a word that we use very often, Messiah. If you do hear it, it's almost always in a religious context or saying to someone, oh, stop trying to be a messiah. In other words, stop trying to, you know, give yourself over for someone else. What does that word actually mean? Quite simply, the word literally means anointed one, one with oil on the head from a, from a Hebrew word that means anointing. And it came into Greek in the word Christos, which means, again, anointed one. Which creates quite a funny story, because in the first century, people who weren't familiar with the Old Testament background of anointing and its significance thought that Jesus was just called Jesus the oily one. But the reason they use this word Messiah is because in Israel, when a king or a member of royalty was crowned, oil was poured on their head. It was a symbol of the Spirit anointing this person's ministry, coming upon them. Why we use the word anointing in churches today. So Messiah technically, literally does mean anointed one, but for all intents and purposes, simply means king. When we say Jesus Christ, we are saying King Jesus, Jesus the king. And there's a lot of Old Testament expectation that that, um, fills this word. God was going to raise up a king 
better than every other king. He was going to raise up the king par excellence, greater than David, greater than Solomon, one that was true and righteous, who would overthrow all the corrupt kingdoms of this world and rule with justice and equity. If we turn quickly to Psalm 2, just take a quick look at at what Psalm 2 has to say about the Messiah. Just think how this would lead to expectation in Israel. Just read the first five verses of Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. We can just read that as against the Lord and against his Messiah. Saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them and he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I'm actually going to carry on because verse 7 says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the end of the earth as your possession. It says that the Lord scoffs at the nations of the world, those who rise up against him. Why does he scoff? Why does he laugh at them? Because he has established his Messiah. He has enthroned his king. That gives the people of God the greatest security. And of course, there is no king without a kingdom to rule over. And so the Old Testament again leads the people of God to have their hope and expectation in a righteous kingdom that God will raise We start to see a preview of this in the book of 1 and 2 Kings. But the thing in 1 and 2 Kings is that it starts on a high. You start with King Solomon. You start with the the kingdom at its highest. And then very, very soon afterwards, it goes down. And it seems to stay down. And this one kingdom of God then splits. And one just goes completely after other gods. The other sometimes is, sometimes isn't. But then someone comes along, a righteous king, and it goes up again. And then the next drop is even greater than the first. And then towards the end, you get the King Josiah, and it seems like everything is going to go well. And then his son completely destroys the temple. And in a few chapters later, there is no more kingdom of God. The northern kingdom have been destroyed, and the southern kingdom are in Babylon. Where is this kingdom of God that you have led us to expect God? says the people of God. Last year we preached through Haggai, which is really the people wrestling with that question. What about this kingdom? So there's longing for this king and his kingdom. And Peter, with hundreds of years of expectation, has come to a gobsmacking conclusion. Could this gentle man from Nazareth be the promised king the one who's going to inherit the nations, the one who will overthrow all godly governments, ungodly governments rather. Is that the only answer that makes sense? Not John the Baptist back from the dead. Not a prophet like Elijah or better than Elijah. Could he be the one? God's Messiah? Every encounter that we've had with someone else in Luke's gospel leads to this. Who is this Jesus? God's Messiah. 
as we move into the next few verses, what happens next should completely throw us off guard. Let's read verses 21 and 22. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. When a king was announced by his followers, it's normally a scene of rapture and applause and is usually followed by some form of military engagement with all those who don't agree that this person is king. When a king is proclaimed, it's never a quiet affair. If it was, it didn't remain one for very long. A new king on the scene likes to make his power known. Many of you know my brother Tom, who uh, studies ancient history, and he, he was telling me recently the story of when Caesar conquered Rome, and it's a really fascinating story. There was a law forbidding a general from entering Rome on horseback. Normally, people were appointed as a dictator for a short time in Rome. Julius Caesar, however, comes into Rome on horseback, 3,000 tons of gold in his uh, carriage, marches onto the city, and then declares, I am the new dictator. He then spends two days giving off speeches to the people about how fortune has led him to this conclusion and how lucky you are to have me as your new king. And everyone with him is applauding and saying, you know, long live the new dictator. That affair, as I say, took two days to finish. It was so loud and so showy. A biblical example, when Solomon becomes king in 1 Kings 1, says this, Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. They sounded the trumpet and all the people shouted, long live King Solomon. All the people went up after him playing pipes and rejoicing greatly so that the ground shook with the sound. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they were finishing their feast. On hearing the sound of the trumpet, Jacob asked, what is the meaning of all this noise in the city? They're outside the city and they can hear this noise from inside because Solomon has been named king. Trumpets, shouting, applause. The new king had arrived and people knew it. Those who are first to acknowledge that king are pretty much always the ones who are elevated most highly in their kingdom. You were the first to say, I have authority. Here you go, be my right-hand man. Something like that. But what's Jesus' response to Peter when Peter says, you are God's king. Does he say, yes, yes I am, you finally got it. Does he say, yes, right, now let's get our swords and march on Jerusalem because that's where I'm going to be ruling from and once we're there and established we can take over all the other nations. No. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anyone. And then he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the Lord, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. An odd thing to say in response to being declared king. You're king. Shh. Why must the Son of Man suffer? Jesus doesn't say, I might have to suffer. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. I can guess there's probably a few people in the room by now who probably know where we're going to turn. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Every time he calls himself the Son of Man, think Daniel chapter 7. 
the only place in the Bible where that word is used of a specific person. Let's, let's look in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has this incredible dream. I won't read the whole thing because it's quite lengthy. But in Daniel chapter 7 verse uh, 2, Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, and four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. He then explains what these four beasts look like. He says the first one looks like a lion with eagle's wings. The second one looks like a bear with ribs for its teeth. It's it's kind of hard to imagine what that actually looks like without it being comical, but the the picture is it's a scary beast. The third one is a four-headed leopard with wings. And the last one, it says, is a terrifying great beast. It says it has iron teeth. It says it devours its victims. It has ten horns, and it crushes down everything in front of it. When you see this vision of four great beasts, you probably know there's going to be a fight scene. Someone's going to get crushed. And then it comes down to verse 13, and Daniel says this, And in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Who in that fight is going to win? The bear with ribs for teeth? Or the man? The great beast that tramples down everything in front of it? that crushes its victims, or a bloke. But then what happens? It says he was coming on the clouds of heaven, and he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power that all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Daniel is comparing the Son of Man's authority, his kingdom, with those of the beasts. He tells us that each of the beasts represents a government, a great empire. One of them is Babylon. One of them is Persia. And if you're thinking, which of these great empires is going to have dominion forever and ever and ever? If you're around in, I don't know, 550 BC, you're probably going to say Babylon. That's the kingdom that's going to exist forever and ever. That's the kingdom that's going to break down every other kingdom, that's going to have the dominion. But Daniel tells us it's the lowly son of man. And it says that all nations, including those four beasts, worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. This vulnerable unexpected figure, the weak one, is the one called up into the throne room of God. His kingdom is the everlasting one, the one you'd least expect. The story of God's kingdom is the story of the ironic king, the one who we wouldn't choose. And there's this sense by now as you go through the Bible that really when you're expecting what God is going to do, you should expect the unexpected. Of course, God's Messiah, this ruling king, is going to be rejected. He's going to have this ironic identity. Yes, he is king. But his kingship is going to be shown by being put to death and raising back to life. 
read verses 23 to 25. Jesus then says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Jesus makes one thing clear. To call him king is a costly decision to make. It's a costly profession. It's not cheap. Today, it's often used as an expletive. You hear people say, oh, Jesus Christ. People are literally saying, Jesus is king as a swear word. It's not cheap to say. It's a dangerous calling. To proclaim someone as king is to identify yourself in their kingdom. In 2016, when Donald Trump was elected, you had people going through Washington holding signs saying, not my president. Now, objectively speaking, he is your president. You are a citizen of the United States. But the statement is saying, I do not identify myself with his rule. He's not the leader that I look to. It's a powerful statement. And it's the same statement that Christians make in regard to worldly governments. But when we come to Jesus and say, you are king, you are God's Messiah, we are identifying ourselves in his rule. Why is that so terrifying? Why is that a dangerous profession to make? Because Jesus has just defined his kingship as a voluntary death sentence. Yeah, there's a glory that comes afterwards. But for Jesus to be king means Jesus dying. He tells them to deny themselves. He says, pick up your cross and carry it. These are terrifying words to a first century audience. I think it can be quite hard for us to understand the depth of what Jesus is saying here because we know the story very well. We know that Jesus is going to carry a cross through the city and eventually die on it. And so the temptation is to read this as Jesus saying, I'm going to do something really, really hard. And if you follow me, that means you also have to do something which is really, really hard. He carried a cross. We carry a cross. But let's just bear this in mind. Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. The disciples don't know he's going to be crucified yet. Him saying carry your cross cannot mean that they hear it as, oh, we just do what you do. Carrying a cross means something quite specific to them. Jesus is using a symbol of immeasurable shame and disgust to say what it's like to be his follower. Today, the symbol of a cross is on graves, kind of gets associated with kind of some nebulous spirituality. Notice cults tend to kind of take the cross and then modify it, and that becomes their logo or it's a nice jewelry, or a nice pattern, or simply it's a Christian church. That's, we see crosses regularly. If we do think of it as an object of um, the death penalty or torture, we tend to focus on the physical pain side of it. We tend to think of it as, oh, that must have been a really painful way to die. And yes, that's true, but in the world of Peter and the disciples, it's less about the physical side and more about the shame of the cross. Let me just try and get us in the thinking of a first century audience. So Rome 
have many ways to put someone to death. And it's pretty much always a spectacle. When you see someone put to death, you see the might of Rome, and so we're going to go down to the town square and we're going to witness it. But the absolute worst, the vermin of society, they receive, receive something that people don't even want to watch. It doesn't happen in the town, it happens outside the town. Not only because the stench of rotting flesh on wood is unbearable, and the sight and the sound is something you do not want to experience, but because it is so shameful. It was so foul that Rome refused to accept that they were the ones who invented it. Roman, a Roman historian is, is quoted as saying, it was probably invented in a barbarous nation. We don't want to take credit for it. We use it, but it's not ours. One Roman historian called Varro writes, even the word is harsh to our ears. He describes crucifixion without even using the word cross or crucifixion because to even name it, ugh. It was despicable to talk about. So few Roman writers even mention it to the point that some historians have concluded it didn't even exist until the second century. It's a minority position, but only vermin received crucifixion. So to think or talk about it or to even see it was to associate yourself with vermin. It was kept far from the mind of good, respectable people. If I stand here and I say the word pedophile, even the word, it's not something you want to hear. It's disgusting. In our society, we look on that and we don't even want to think about the word. It leaves a sour taste in the mouth. As soon as the word hits our ears, we feel sick. That is how they heard the word cross. When Jesus says, carry your cross, he is saying, be prepared for society to look on you in the way that it looks on a pedophile. This is not to say that if you're well-liked in the world, you're failing as a Christian. This is a message about what are you prepared to do? What does it mean to profess, uh, profess Christ as king? Are you prepared to be scum in the eyes of the world just as your king was looked at? In the coming century, more so than previous centuries, there is a growing hostility to Christianity in this country. It used to be, well, you believe this and I believe this and what people do in the privacy of their own homes is neither yours or my business. But now it's definitely much more moving on to the aggressive. To be a Christian is to believe despicable things. Carl Truman, the church historian who is known for his kind of dry pessimism that is often vindicated, says this. The next generation of Christians have a hard choice to make in the next decade. You really do kid yourselves if you think you can be an orthodox Christian and at the same time be cool enough and hip enough to cut it in the wider world. Frankly, in a couple of years, it will not matter how much urban ink you sport, how much fair trade coffee you drink, how many craft beers you can name, how much urban gibberish you spout, and how many movies you can find that redeemer figure in, how much money you divert from uh, the gospel preaching to social justice. 
Maintaining something as simple as biblical sexual ethics will be the equivalent in our culture of being a white supremacist. Jesus' question is, are you prepared to carry a cross? Are you prepared to confess Jesus as God's Messiah, even if it means losing your life? Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Peter learns how costly it is to say Jesus is king. To call him your king means you enter in, into that which the Son of Man will endure. It means that we enter into the battle with our own sin as well. That we put everything at the feet of our king. It means looking at everything that is not Christ and saying to ourselves, this is not my king. Jesus is my king. It's not an easy statement to make. It's not a cheap statement to make. It's a hard statement to make. It causes battles every day in our own lives, in the lives of our loved ones, in the lives of people we are surrounded by. But that is the Christian calling. Verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. There's more to this story than just shame, because what's true of the king is true of those in his kingdom, and the cross is a prelude to a crown. Jesus was subject to shame. Jesus was lowly. He came with no outward glory, but now he is enthroned and glorified. And one day he'll be revealed to the world, not lowly and humble as he once was, but in glory as he is now. He carried his cross, and now he wears the crown. So are you willing to join him in his shame with the promise that you will be joined to him in his glory? That's what it means to confess what Peter confesses here, to say you are God's Messiah. It means that you are saying, and I will stay everything to follow you. I will lose my life if it means gaining life with you. If we can't identify with his shame, why should we expect to be identified with his glory? Jesus, when he was humbled, fought with the devil's temptations in the wilderness. Jesus opposed world systems that did not match God's standards. Jesus was rejected by this world. And when he returned to his father, he did not hear the words, I sent you to make friends. Why did you alienate people? When Jesus came to his father, he was given a seat and told to rule because he had done everything that he had been sent to do. To come before Christ and confess, you are God's Messiah, gives us a challenge. We fight with temptations. We do not bow the knee to Caesar. We love a hurting world by applying grace and truth, not compromise and surrender. We bear our cross, our shame, with the guarantee of a crown. This is what the kingdom of God looks like, and it starts in our own lives. To be victorious 
in the kingdom of God is not to see money flowing through your bank account. You can go into a Christian bookshop today and pick up loads of books on victorious living. Victorious living looks like a Christian on their knees, repenting before the Lord. Victorious living is not luxury living. Victorious living is in the kingdom of God, seeing righteousness and obedience to Christ as your priority. That is what a victorious Christian looks like. Verse 27, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This kingdom with hundreds of years of expectation. We're going to see it. When are we going to see it? When I die on a cross. That's when you'll see the kingdom of God, says Jesus. This kingdom is going to be witnessed. Is it by power or by might? Is it by Jesus coming and decimating this government we don't like? Or is it by Jesus coming and ruining all his foes? We might say, but I thought the kingdom was going to crush every other kingdom. That's what his disciples may have been thinking. Is, is this not going to happen then? But Jesus says to them, you will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And so some people will want to push the kingdom far into the future. The kingdom hasn't happened yet. Jesus isn't ruling yet. He'll come back and then he'll bring it. And that misses the irony of the kingdom. It has begun. And so many people didn't even notice it. The book of Daniel in chapter 2 talks about all these kingdoms like a huge statue. And then this tiny stone, it's, it's barely even a rock, comes and destroys the whole statue. And then that statue grows and grows and grows, and eventually it becomes a mountain that fills the whole world. The disciples saw the kingdom of God as a stone. In our time, we may be seeing it as a pebble. But Jesus is ruling and reigning. There was a prominent pastor in America a few years ago who said, this is the kingdom, this is it. I don't think so. When Jesus brings his kingdom, you'll know. But the kingdom subverts expectation, just as the king subverts expectations. Starts as a stone, starts as a mustard seed, starts as a leaven, all these things Jesus uses to describe it. This isn't a kingdom that's established with might. It's established in weakness. And if you are willing to be weak and ashamed and to come before God knowing that you are weak and ashamed, you will find the king welcoming you in. This kingdom is the one that we can be members of by faith, by the blood of Jesus. This is a kingdom where people in this kingdom do not say, I've not sinned for a month. This isn't a kingdom where people say, well, um, I actually do give quite a lot of money to charity. So. This is a kingdom where people say, Lord, I don't belong to be here. I don't belong here. This is a kingdom where people say, Lord, we sing you are so good and it doesn't feel like it sometimes. This is a kingdom where people feel like they come home from work and say, this is so much pressure, Lord. I could risk losing my job for standing with the truth. 
but the king is strong enough to hear it. And he welcomes us in with those words. Are you prepared to do the dangerous thing that Peter does? Are you prepared to come before Jesus and say, you're not just a great prophet, you're not just a healer, you're not just a troublemaker or some controversial fundamentalist. You are God's Messiah. Are you prepared to carry your cross? Every time we say Jesus Christ, we are saying Jesus is King. By the power of the Spirit, let's be powerful enough to live up to that calling. Let's pray. Lord, we wish that being a Christian was an easy calling. Lord, sometimes we wish that when we see those four beasts in Daniel, you come along as an even bigger beast. But Lord, you come lowly and rejected and shamed and call those of us who would follow you to equally be lowly and rejected and shamed, to fight with sin, whether it be sin outside of us or within us. So Lord, help us by your Spirit to declare and mean Jesus is King. Lord, help it not just to be a sentence we say, but something we live Jesus is God's Messiah. Teach us what it means to be your people, Lord. By your spirit, we pray. Amen.